Hello, and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young, and I'm a reporter and the managing editor here at Ed Surge. Long before computers even existed or were technically possible, philosophers dreamed up the idea of artificial intelligence. And they even imagined something like the internet. And one consistent dream of these theorists has been that maybe one day machines could do the mundane parts of our thinking for us, leaving space for human minds to reach new heights of thought. These days, digital machines really can do some thinking for us. Kind of. As I composed a draft of of what I'm saying right now on Google Docs, the system was able to guess words and and offer them as suggestions for me as I typed, basically guessing what I was going to say before I said it. It's called Smart Compose. It can save some time, and it's a technological marvel if you think about it. Because it's only able to do that because it's watched so many people on the system type over the internet on Google Docs so that it can make these predictions. But I wrestle with whether this is a good or a bad thing. And like many people, I wonder, what are these tools doing to my brain and the way I process information? A philosopher and historian of technology named Justin E.H. Smith, he's been focused on these questions too. He has been diving into the past to see where our dreams about the internet have come from. And he has a warning for what he thinks is going wrong and how things have evolved in recent years and what it might be doing to us as learners and thinkers. So I came upon Justin Smith's work um, on some essays that he's been writing as part of his personal newsletter on Substack. And he has a really fun um, philosophy podcast called What is X? Where he uses Socratic dialogues um, to talk with a guest about big topics like what is history or what is beauty. And then he and his guest either agree, disagree, or come to a kind of philosophical tie called aporia, which apparently is Greek for dead end. This scholar is not shy in being critical of lots of social media trends these days. But he knows them firsthand um, because he's active on all these systems, and he has a playful curiosity as he engages with the ideas of how tech is shaping our lives. Justin thinks change is needed in how things are going with social media systems and big tech. And he thinks that a better understanding of the long arc of tech history might help us make a course correction. He lays out his ideas in a new book called The Internet is Not What You Think It Is. I recently connected with this philosopher by Zoom. He was in his home office in Paris. He's a professor of history and the philosophy of science at the University of Paris. And I started by asking him to talk about an episode in his book where he notes that soon after Gutenberg invented the printing press, people freaked out about what they saw as a flood of information and what that would do to society. I mean, here I have mostly to thank the Harvard historian Anne Blair to, uh, for the phrase uh, early modern information overload. I love this phrase, early modern information overload. Anyway, I asked him what people were so worked up about back then. 
I suppose, um, you know, the uh, this is Anne Blair's term is information overload. And, you know, she wrote the most incredible book about what looks like the most boring thing ever, which is uh, changes in library uh, classification systems <laughs> over the course of the early modern period. But what this showed is that people were uh, reckoning with the fact that um knowledge was open-ended now, whereas uh, previously, throughout the Middle, Middle Ages, in general, being a learned person meant interiorizing a certain uh, body of knowledge, a doctrine or a dogma, for which the Latin word, indeed, or a close Latin cognate was scientia, which we translate as science, but science in the medieval sense meant something different. It meant a body of knowledge, you learn, master, that's it, right? Um, you could win, in, you could win yeah, this. You could, yeah. yeah. In the early modern period, with the externalization of information and with the the transformation of learning into something you don't interiorize, but you rather keep at hand on a shelf next to you, this was the beginning of something that's continuing today, which is what I think of as the externalization of knowledge or prosthetic knowledge. And as I explain in the book, at this point, Wikipedia is now, for me, very much a, a prosthesis of my, of my brain, right? Um, I consider uh, all of the information about quasars or Byzantine heresies or whatever that's at my fingertips at any moment already, to some extent, mine, even though I admit I, I have to go and access it on Wikipedia in order to um, in order to really know it. But again, this is a process that begins with writing, ultimately, um, and that is uh, uh, quickened again with the revolution in the circulation of printed materials and is quickened again, is stepped up to a ne the next level um, in more recent years with, uh, with the internet and with the explosion of, um, of, of digital information. You know, one of the things that strikes me from, from, from that is really that librarians are the most dangerous people on earth because <laughs> the internet, you know, like the Google search engine comes out of Stanford right. library program, right. you know, this is, this uh, revolution we're in now really came out of libraries in a lot of ways. Right, right, right. Yeah, and of course, I mean, you know, how you classify information, how information is organized is sort of, you know, nothing less than world structuring, right? Um, and it's a heavy responsibility. And of course, that's one of the dangers uh, that um, that tech culture or people who come up through tech culture rather than, say, through the humanities or through library sciences in some rigorous way have not thought enough about how they're structuring the world. One thing I've been thinking about a lot recently is I'm infuriated every time I look something up. I mean, let's just take a dumb example. Uh, say I want to... Uh, 
Google Wolverines or something, uh, and I Google, I just enter Wolverine into into the uh, into the search engine, and the first several entries it pulls up are say uh, college athletics teams called the Wolverines, right? Or similarly, Amazon taking the word Amazon away from the Amazon, right? Um, right. I, Good luck it, doing research about the Amazon. Right. Yeah. It seems as though there ought to be some hard laws passed soon that guarantee the primacy in search engines of the early, earliest and original source of a given term. Otherwise, we're structuring our world according to foolish whims and corporate profits. <laughs> One of the things, though, going back even further, is that there's also this dream, utopian dream, I guess, that you trace the history of that goes back even farther than Gutenberg, as I, as I understand it. And could, so I, I know that our, our listeners, we've done several episodes where we touch on these forgotten learning technologies or forgotten periods of like, and and I feel like I'm always learning more of them. And your book gave me even more that I hadn't heard before. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, um, uh, you know, there's there's a few, but like, what are some of the previous ones people may not realize were were kind of dreams of how information could be um, organized or almost like AI like things before computers in a way of like yeah. helping people with their brains. Well, you know, I give a few ancient and medieval examples. Um, uh, I think the the one most striking one is the 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 legend of the brazen head, um, which is something that was supposedly uh, uh, created by the medieval English alchemist experimentalist Roger Bacon in the 13th century in Oxford um, which yeah, was Yeah, what is this? Yeah, what uh, was this brazen well, head? I, I mean, just, you know, it was made out of brass and it could answer yes or no to any question you posed to it and the locals really do seem to have believed that, um, that Bacon had come up with such a thing and legends persisted about this um, afterwards. Now It's like a magic this, eight ball of sorts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is the interesting thing because in the 13th century, uh, the line between, let's say, natural magic, divination, and information technology was very blurry, right? Which is why I see the history of computer science properly understood as beginning in the 17th century, so about 400 years after Roger Bacon. And this is in particular with a great hero of mine on whom I've written a number of books by now, uh, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, who was a, a 17th century German philosopher. Um, he's known for many things, inventing the binary calculus among them, infinitesimal calculus as well, so he's considered an important figure in the history of mathematics, but also in, in the history of computer science. Um, and he was aware of ba Roger Bacon-style alchemical uh, experiments to try to conjure into existence omniscient forces uh, in beakers and alembics and stuff like that. But Leibniz thought, no, that's not going to work. If we want to build artificial prostheses, 
that will help us answer questions, we're going to have to do this with gears and dials and so on. So around 1672, Leibniz developed a working model of what was called a reckoning engine, which was really just for arithmetic, but Leibniz understood that because of the possibility of a binary calculus, that is translating all information into zeros and ones, at least in principle, an arithmetic engine could also be a concept crunching engine, right? So, um, and then Leibniz says some wildly utopian things about the promise that such machines hold for the future of humanity, like that someday when two parties are about to go to war, they'll just say, let us calculate, and they'll punch in their various commitments, and then the machine will tell them which which side is right, and we'll have uh, everlasting peace, right? Um, and on the story I try to tell in my book, uh, in The Internet is Not What You Think It Is, this utopian dream kind of lasted from about 1672 to sometime in the 2010s, right? Um, you yeah, might, we're living through a big transformation yeah, in this dream. Yeah, so you might date it. I mean, I can remember in the 90s when, you know, people said really, like, Leibnizian level optimistic things about the internet like we're all we're all going to be netizens and and that's going to be the future of democracy and democratic deliberation will be immediate and fully egalitarian and level and etc cetera, etc cetera, it was right? exciting i wrote i was writing about tech at this time like it was yeah. there was a lot of a lot of good feeling yeah, 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 yeah. And so, you know, when did, when did things go wrong? Well, you know, I started I started feeling down on the potentials of social media to mediate um, democratic participation, probably around the time the Arab Springs descended into bloodbaths. And, you know, this was a time when at first people were saying, look at the way Twitter is mobilizing people for peaceful democratic revolutions. Um, Then things went wrong. Then we had Cambridge Analytica. Then we had Donald Trump. And and so Cambridge Analytica, which was obviously this is like basically using the algorithms of Facebook to to manipulate the public. Right, right, right. But even before that, you know, I think I don't know when exactly things shifted, but, you know, I I can remember using social media in the aughts and having the wonderful experience of what I believe is called the the fire hose feed, where, you know, what you see is what your the members of your network have posted in the order they've posted it. And yeah, it's an algorithm for the arrangement of your Twitter followers or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, I remember that. So when that disappeared and we started getting inscrutable, mysterious, um, algorithmically churned up uh, feeds um, that were clearly in the interest of the social media companies, but not in the interest of, um, let's say, uh, the ideal uh, kind of medium for the circulation of reliable information, uh, let alone for the user's edification, that's when I started turning really sour. And that was probably about 2012. And um, 
you know, then in the mid 2010s, I started being a full time crank uh, and writing, um, writing very, very angry and cynical things about the Internet. But it's always really made me angry nonetheless when the when the reaction has been, um, what are you some kind of Luddite? Right. Um, I hate that. Right. Because it's like, look, obviously um, there's a there's there's a possibility of critiquing the current deployment of a given technology and the ends to which it's deployed without at the same time saying, I think this technology should be smashed and we should return to um, hunting and gathering or something like that. I mean, obviously we should be able to pursue that sort of critique without without having to hear this tired old Luddite canard. Yeah, you're uh, if you are if you are a Luddite, you're one with a podcast and a Substack and right. a, you know, you, you right. are up on the latest. Um, <laughs> right, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I try to, you know, I I have I have my um my complaints about even how my podcast and my substack get out there in the into the information ecosystem but you know what other choice do we have what am i going to do start publishing mimeographed pamphlets or something yeah mailing it to me yeah <laughs> right uh i i i wanted to i wanted to go back to um uh, uh, to is it is it Leibniz? I want to make sure I pronounce it correctly. I mean, Leibniz. Is Leibniz. How, yeah, I yeah. apologize. Leibniz. And you mentioned something that I thought was really interesting. Um, that basically the dream of that philosopher, and then that kind of carried forward for a long time, was that we would be freed through these devices to um, get out of the mundane thinking that we have to do and be liberated to really get to focus our, our, our human minds on exciting, more philosoph- philosophically rich, more just better thought. And, and so I guess say a little bit more about th- that is, I guess that's the the dream, right? I mean, yeah. people still, people still talk about this in Silicon Valley, I believe, and right, in teach- yeah. especially with teaching technology, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but it's, the thing is, it's always a difficult question, right? And actually, you know, Leibniz surprised me when I first read this in him. Leibniz thinks that learning arithmetic and, you know, mastering the skill of long division um, is an onerous burden that ideally we wouldn't have to do. Oh, wow. Um, he's a mathematician. It, I mean, he yeah, loves numbers. He, yeah, but yeah he like, loves numbers, but he just wants to do the higher level conceptual stuff and let machines do the boring long division stuff. So then, you know, the question arises, well, is it just an onerous burden that we only do because machine, until machines can do it for us? Or is it intrinsically edifying? I think with any practice that's going to be a kind of gestalt, right? Um, you can see it as a burden or you can see it as edifying. And it's the way it's incorporated into a culture that will determine whether it's good or bad, right? Um, and I think this is certainly true, for example, of, say, if you look at, I've recently gotten into a lot of trouble with fellow, with, with colleagues for defending traditions of rote learning, of memorizing things by heart. I actually think that's a good thing to do. And even when you don't understand what you're memorizing, if you get, you know, the whole Bible or all of, I don't know, Ovid's Metamorphoses 
into your mind by the time you're 12 years old, you can spend the rest of your life just unfolding meanings from this thing that you already have. So is that onerous or is it is it uplifting? Again, it's impossible to say. Um, but I think the mistake that we make with technology is to say, oh, we have this machine that can, that can do something for us now. Uh, therefore, that thing must have been merely onerous and we can turn it over to the machine now. Right. But where the line is to be drawn, I think, is a complex question that has more to do with human culture and human practices than it has to do with the nature of the technology itself. Right. And that's, you know, I, I, I quote um, the environmental thinker of the mid 20th century, Aldo Leopold, who's talking about duck hunting and using gadgets when you go I was going to ask hunting. you about this. So yeah. duck calls. No. How does. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think duck calls is a fascinating example yeah. that you talk about in your book. So, like, yeah. yeah. How does this work through duck calls? Well, you know, I mean, I suppose since the Paleolithic period or earlier, you know, hunters have been cultivating an art of hunting that involves, among other things, the imitation of animal sounds, right? And that has involved using implements, reeds and so on, to help them make the sounds. And in a way, that is undeniably just part of the art of hunting, right? Right. Is it cheating or hunting? um, It's been hunting. Yeah. Right, right. But the point is that, you know, if it helps you master a skill and be on top of the skill or the art, if you want to put it in the old fashioned way, that's one thing. But say you've got a duck call that's so good that you just have to blow into it and a hundred ducks immediately flock in front of you waiting to be shot. Now, obviously, you should be ashamed of yourself if you if you if you resort to that. Right. Um, And that it shows that, you know, in a sense, the mistake is not um, to use art. Again, you know, I'm thinking of art in the broad sense. And in Greek, you know, the, the word for technology and the word for art is the same. It's techne. Um, and so, so anything, any practice you do, whether it involves gadgets or not, is in a sense a technology, right? So what this example shows is that in a sense, you know, uh, uh, obviously, we want what we do to be effective. We want to get enough ducks to to not starve to death. Um, I I don't hunt myself. I, I hate the idea of but we killing do ducks. But we yeah. do eat. Um, uh, 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 obviously, we want we want to be on top of our art. But if we invent technologies that just, you know, vastly outstrip anything that we ourselves could achieve in that art, then we're no longer practicing that art. And in a sense, that what what we're seeing now with literary production, cultural production, um, 
uh, movie making, uh, so many things is uh, just turning responsibility over to machines uh, so that they outstrip us in a way that I think is analogous to, you know, the duck call that makes, uh, you know, a thousand ducks just pile up dead in front of you. It's like, okay, you're getting more, um, but but this this ain't the thing we were after before. Yeah. Right? I, I think you're. I think you have this interesting point of like, um, if you finished a day of hunting, and I'm not a hunter myself, but if you finished a day of hunting and you've shot nothing, are you? Did you waste your time, or did right. you actually have? a huge part of the experience, maybe right. most of the experience, but that is the, what's lost. If right. You, right. If right. you have this tool that just does it, does the, yeah, part right, 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 human. right. Exactly. Exactly. He argues in his book that the big danger is that smart compose or autocorrect or whatever, these AI algorithms, they're altering our lives so much is that humans are actually starting to act more like Twitter bots rather than us shaping these tools. He complains that Twitter has turned the kind of public discourse in America into a kind of game about talking about current events and politics, rather than any genuine political sphere for democracy's sake. That's because the algorithms on these things like Twitter, they reward provocative or outrageous statements by, by showing more users those things, and, and then those other people are more likely to forward them or like them. And that means people are making points and arguments online, not really to please other humans anymore, but to please the algorithms. It can, it can lead to a dark place, he says, where we don't really know what each other believes, even though we're all typing constantly online to each other. So a couple more things. So one is it sounds like even though you are a fan of Leibniz um, and, and have done so much on his work and you're you're now a little bit it sounds like disagreeing with his this premise that that somehow getting you know having a tool do the easy math for us is the dream you're saying that what we've proven to ourselves in this social media era that you already referenced your concerns about is that the the current ai era shows us you think that he was wrong and so what what do you how do you see it now well, I mean, I, I, I admire Leibniz's optimism, and I, I think that circa 1700, um, at the kind of dawn of the High Enlightenment, um, one was justified in having such optimism. I'm also particularly interested in the mid-20th century cybernetician Norbert Wiener, um, who uh, in the early 1960s wrote very lucidly about Leibniz's dream, but was also looking at now uh, by 1962 already um, uh, AI systems that could play chess and that were starting to get really good at chess. And Wiener said in 1962, this is not going to end well, right? We think they're just playing chess right now, but they're going to jump the fence pretty Pretty quick and start uh, start uh, uh, structuring domains of our lives well beyond board games, right? And that's indeed what happened. Um, so, what is to be done now um, that we can't be we can't share in that old optimism? I don't know. I mean, I don't give convincing solutions, and there are a lot of authors who are much better as um, 
policy analysts and as policy recommenders than I am, um, I kind of give the negative argument and leave the positive arguments to others. But I, I mean, at a, a minimum, I think there is going to have to be some kind of arrangement, first of all, that protects our privacy um, in our engagement online. And second of all, um, carves out a real substantive role for democratic oversight of social media. That is to say, to recognize its actual function as a uh, de facto social, uh, uh, excuse me, public utility, rather than as a, you know, as a private, uh, uh, private accessory that you can use like you would use dry cleaning or something like that if you feel like it or not, if you don't feel like it. It's a necessity now. Um, we're all sucked into its gravitational pull. Even if you don't have a Twitter account or a Facebook account, the way you live in this world is being structured by the rules that govern social media. And given that that's the case, we have the right to demand uh oversight over how it works, right? Now, how that's actually going to play out in practice is really hard to see. I don't want the government to seize Facebook tomorrow. I don't think that's a good idea. Um, and indeed, having government-run social media um, uh, is, uh, the, uh, it, it, even in principle, uh, generates all sorts of new worries. But what I I know is that um, it can't be run as a as a as a pro fully private for profit uh, 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 business rather than as a public utility. You you cite Wikipedia. You do you do say that like there's got to be some reform for the internet as it exists because we can't just turn it off. Yeah. Um, and so you do see Wikipedia as a good news story. It sounds like. Well, I, I mean, yeah, qualifiedly, I myself often spend a few hours of a day on the website of the um, uh, Bibliothèque Nationale de France, uh, where I'm downloading scanned 17th century manuscripts. Um, and that's the internet too, right? And that's obviously a boon of the internet. I don't have to spend hours of my day actually going to the library. And it's such a wonderful thing. There's, it's just an unquestionable good. Um, but that's not that's not what's causing the problems, right? And um, so Wikipedia there, I mean, I, I wanted that final chapter to be um, kind of bittersweet um, and to leave the, the reader with an ambiguous sense of like, wait, does he like this or not? Um, because I think that after about 10 years of, you know, kind of constantly every little thought that pops into my mind, like what is a quasar anyway, I'll immediately pull my phone out and I'll learn what a quasar is. Whereas 20 years ago, if I was walking down the street and I thought, what is a quasar? Hmm, I don't know, maybe someday I'll learn, right? Um, and so, so now I just do that habitually and I feel like it has fundamentally transformed my cognitive 
range over the past decade. Sometimes I think it's good, but it's also pretty clear that something has been lost, right? That that I've traded one cognitive way of being for another. One of the things that struck me, I will share my own current kind of tension with with the internet tools that that are in front of me as I do my job as a journalist which is the auto you know auto suggest of words in Google Doc or any other word processor frankly where I only have to type a couple letters and hit tab and there it is I I am turning it off because I feel like I am losing the ability to do something I've honed over my you know my time as a journalist in like that's one of my skills. That's one of my skills. And like, if I give that away, um, what, what, you know, wh- why would I lose that skill? And what do I gain by that? Uh, a couple seconds of, of, you know, a couple seconds of time saving. But I think there's, but I mean, that's a small thing, right? It, but no, I it's feel a like huge I thing. Feel, <laughs> I feel like I'm kind of up against something as these as these yeah. shadowy words appear in front of my screen. Yeah, yeah, a choice, a really tough choice. No, I mean, I find it absolutely enraging. I feel like I have a mastery of my native language, English, that gives me absolute authority to override Microsoft Word and what it thinks I ought to be saying. And if I write something that it doesn't recognize as correct, that's because I am going beyond its abilities, right? Now, it's different. I I, I do prefer to have autocorrect on when I'm writing in French um, because it saves me time in trying to figure out if the, the accent circonflex should be there or not, things like that. So, you know, for me, where I, I work pretty much back and forth between two languages every day, I have very different attitudes um, depending on, uh, about the technologies, depending on uh, the language I'm using. But I'm I'm really, really offended by autocorrect in English, in part because I feel like it's, um, it's the machines trying to invalidate my very human mastery of my natural language, of my mother tongue, right? Um, to which I'm very attached, right? So it's a, it's a, I, I absolutely agree with you about this, yeah. It's my hunting, it's my duck call. I don't know, yeah, it's something, right, there's right. something yeah, yeah, yeah. like, it's, yeah, it's there's like... Yeah, an, it's an art, yeah, it's an art, it, right? Yeah, the, our, the use of our language is absolutely an art and we can't be... Um, we can't be constrained by artificial parameters. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, we, we could clearly go on, but I, I guess, is there any other comments, you know, you don't specifically talk about education much in the book, which is, which is totally fine, but I'm curious, you know, what are the implications for, um, those teaching in a classroom, whether it be at a college or a, a primary school, wherever they are for, for these, for everything we've been talking about? Well, you know, I have friends who are part of what I see as a pretty um, kind of bold movement of kind of back to the basics, great books, humanistic education. And the options for that are so limited that they're in some cases trying to 
create uh, uh, new institutions, new movements from scratch. Um, and so their idea is get technology out of the classroom, go back to the technologies that have been around for centuries. And I think, you know, for myself, I'm pretty... Um, I'm pretty old-fashioned in the classroom. Uh, I, I I like to just talk and um, and write things on the board when when I feel like they come up and they're important. And I think that's all that I'm ever going to want to do in the classroom. I've also noticed that I like giving Zoom lectures and I like using PowerPoint in Zoom. I feel like I'm really on top of it. Um, and so, you know, it's strange, but I, I, I can work in both modes very well. But I do think that what I, you know, my, my basic convictions about education, you know, will f flow unsurprisingly from what you've already heard about my philosophy of technology. I think that Again, taking technology in the broad sense to include practices, um, it is a good idea in general to prefer those technologies that are intrinsic to human experience, um, which is to say uh, storytelling, recitation, um, gesture, movement, things like that over um, gadgets in Aldo Leopold's sense. Um, and especially at the primary school level, um, I really would like to be as cautious as possible going forward about making education gadget dependent. Right? And, and, and you're kind of not kidding about having students memorize the Bible. Well, or something I mean, like it. Or, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, obviously, I, you know, I, my, when I got in trouble about this with with friends of mine, I was like, look, I'm a realist. I'm not actually going to do this in the in the present world. It's just that I'm also going to say that in an absolute sense, this uh, might not be so awful as we've all been conditioned to think it is through these kind of great thinkers of liberal enlightenment philosophy of, edu of education, like Rousseau, like John Dewey, and so on. Um, you know, there's been a, a, a lot of cumulative weight of denunci denunciation of rote, memoriza rote memorization for so long that I do kind of feel like it's time to say, like, wait a minute. Uh, what were the benefits of that? Um, so that's, but again, I'm, I'm not going to, I, I mean, uh, one single person can't, can't turn the tide. All you can do is kind of throw questions out there for exploration, but you ultimately have to go along with, you know, uh, 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 the current trends in education um, for the most part, right? If you are a professor. Well, honestly, thank you for throwing out these questions for our audience. I appreciate all, all this. It's a fascinating book, yeah. and thanks for being here today. Yeah, thanks. It's been a lot of fun to talk to you. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we bring you a new episode like this one. Please follow us on your favorite podcast app to keep up with every episode. And sign up for our Ed Surge Podcast newsletter at edsurge.com. Just click on the word newsletter at the top right. And please tell a friend about the Ed Surge podcast. That helps spread the word about the show and helps us grow. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on Twitter, 
at J.R. Young. Music this episode by Mon Plessier. We will be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.